For the week of Thursday, February 21st, 2019, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk with two former campaign staffers for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who have just launched an online training program that teaches people how to be more effective campaigners and can even train you to be a high-level staffer yourself. It's called Movement School, and we talk with the founders Gabe Tobias and Alona Diverge. Then we have our week in review. This week, we talk about the Trump Emergency Declaration and about Bernie Sanders' entrance into the 2020 race with Indivisible Washington's 8th Chris Petzold and the chair of the King County Democrats, Shasti Conrad. We will also have our weekly call to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. Last year, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez shocked the political establishment when she beat incumbent Joe Crowley for the Democratic nomination in New York's 14th district. And in the wake of her midterm victory, two former staffers have taken what they learned and co-founded an immersive training program called Movement School. Ilona Duverge was deputy organizing director of AOC's campaign, and Gabe Tobias was senior advisor and was previously a lead organizer with the Obama campaign and also with ACORN. Ilona Duverge and Gabe Tobias bias join us both now hello to you both Hi. So excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So, you know, I want to talk all about Movement School, what it is, what it does. But first, I think people would be very interested to hear what it was like working on the AOC campaign. Um, So first, talk a little bit about why you both got involved. What did you see in her as a candidate early on? Alona, let's start with you. Sure. Um, Well, I met Alexandria um, while I was the field director for a city council campaign in 2017. Um, And immediately, uh, you know, I saw someone who truly who truly had this passion um, to make change in her community, Um, someone who looks and represent truly represents the people that she looks that she is out to represent and um i continued contact with her uh, you know throughout that that time and when she then was launching her campaign um i was connected to her campaign manager you know to to really start to start operations and I remember thinking, you know, like this is an incredibly hard race. There's a lot of power and money up that we're up against. And I don't know if this, we're going to pull this off, but she sure as hell is worth fighting for. Um, and also because I saw a lot of myself in her and the type of, you know, representative that I feel the Bronx, especially that district deserves. Um, so I wanted to make sure I did everything that I could in order in order to to get her across that finish line, despite um, you know the outcome. But we won, so it was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it really was a uh, – I'm sure that it was an uphill battle, and I, I'm sure that you felt the weight of, you know, all of the forces that were uh, against you. Um, and I kind of want to get your thoughts on that in just a second. But, Gabe, talk a little bit about why you got involved. What did you see in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the candidate, early on? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think in some ways my, my story mirrors when you know, we're coming from, from different places in the political world. Um, I had been involved in, in New York politics for a little bit, uh, starting with my time as a statewide direct field director for, for Separate Chat in 2014. Yeah. And so knew some of the people who had been involved in, in trying to get other progressive candidates to run in New York City and, 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 and surrounding areas. And so a friend of mine, Kat Bresler, introduced me to Alexandria and said, this is Alexandria who's running up in, in New York 14 against Joe Crowley. And I said, oh, wow. Mm. That's taking on <laughs> quite a quite a big challenge. Um, but went out uh, to meet her and meet some of the team, and I just remember this very clear moment. Uh, we, we were in a, a, a basically a basement of, of, a, of a church in Queens, in Jackson Heights, Queens. Um, and you know, on the in a primary congressional campaign, an off year in a place that probably most people didn't even know that, that anyone was running, or at least didn't seem like it. This was, you know, a few months before the primary election. And I went there expecting to find a room of, you know, maybe 20 people or so sitting around listening to a candidate talk. And I went in there and there was, you know, 150 people, basement totally full, standing room only, cheering crowds. And I wow. thought, wow, this is this is something special. And then to meet the team, meet all the people who were involved, it was really an amazing, amazing kind of meeting point. And I think, you know, same thing as what Alona says, 
you kind of went in thinking, hey, this is going to be an uphill battle. We may not win, but this may be worth it. Um, whatever whatever it means to, to the community and, and to you know fighting for for local power, um, particularly among in, in immigrant communities, people of color in Queens and in Bronx. Um, if this is a stepping stone, then it's a, it's a big stepping stone. And then in the end. Things were, uh, <laughs> things were a little different than we, than we expected. <laughs> well, yeah. So about the night that she won the primary, did you feel that things were going that way from your view on the ground? Or, or were you as surprised as she seemed to be uh, the night that she won, Gabe? Uh, you know, I... I I said there, there, uh, when I was going to come back to this, that campaign, there were, there were two moments where I felt really clearly that, that she was going to win. And the first was in that basement when I seen people full up for, for a primary campaign like this. And the second was on election day itself. Um, I was part of uh, monitoring other results throughout the day from our volunteers. And it really, it looked really, really good. I mean, we, we didn't know what was going to happen till the end. Um, but the signs we saw on election day were were spectacular. Just talking to you know the percentage of people who had both voted among those who we had targeted to vote, um, and people who had voted for her just in general across all kinds of groups we had people were talking to was really high. It was way higher than we had expected. Yeah, I mean, I think we have seen the video of her connecting uh, with people in that way, and that clearly made uh, a big difference. Ilona, talk a little bit about your experience on uh, election night. I was in, Gabe, Gabe is actually in, in Queens, I was in the Bronx um, boiler room, and my, like, my job that day was to make sure that our volunteers and, like, our canvassers had their turf and that that turf was, you know, you know refreshed as often as possible and that they had clean data to go out there and, and, and do their thing. Um, and I remember that day, it was, it was so hectic and, like, there was a million fires that were going on and we were just trying to put them all out. But something that really, that I I really just stuck to was I was very confident in the, in our team. I was very confident in our approach in our, in our approach, the way that we talk to people on the ground, the way that we engage people, the way that we really bring people into this process that have not, have never been part of it before. And I was confident in that. And even though all these little mini fires were arising, I was so confident that not only Alexander, the way that Alexandria conducts herself on the ground, but the way our organizers conduct themselves on the ground, it was so different than, you know, the way that traditional field programs are, are ran, that I felt confident in that. And we, and like Gabe said, we saw that return in the numbers as they were coming in. And, and that's what made me hopeful um, that we were doing something. And even... And I thought to myself, you know, even if we don't win, this is completely like this is remarkable. And the fact that we're getting this response from, you know, a field program that most, you know, consultants would not agree with is amazing. And it's super telling in itself. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned some of the differences. Certainly uh, the staffers, you're all very young. But what are some of the other differences that maybe set AOC's campaign apart? Gabe, can, can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the the big thing about the campaign that that Alexandria ran, and that some of this also links as well to what we're planning to teach in in movement school, is campaigns that link that the campaigns that that are really built on people power, not just as a rhetorical device, but in absolutely every single piece of the way the campaign works. So when we're thinking about raising money, it's not about calling up big dollar donors and trying to get big fat checks from them. It's about having uh, you know, a, a, a fundraising program that raises small dollar donations, even in races like that, that are not necessarily the highest profile. Um, it's about building up teams of volunteers that have independent authority to do a lot of the work they want to do within their own community. So not, you know, the, the field director says, this is exactly how everyone's going to do their job and go out and do it like a sort of military style, but much more decentralized and empowering for people to say, this is my uh, NYCHA building, my, my public housing building, or this is my block. I know what these people care about. I know what they want to hear. I know how to reach them and speaking, speaking their, their language um, in ways that it's hard to do, you know, from a, and Elena talks about this, with, you know, the consultants that exist in terms of New York City politics and, and across the country yeah. who would tell you, no, you need to talk to the people who always vote. But our campaign talked to people who rarely vote, people who weren't necessarily the ones who, to um, kind of the 
usual suspects, you might say, in, in, right. in political life here in New York. But younger people, people of color, particularly Latino and black communities in, in Queens and Bronx, and then finding ways to connect with them and where, where they were, as opposed to saying, come to us, we're the, we're the campaign, we're, we're the ones who have the power. We're saying, you guys have the power, you guys can determine how we, how we live out this, this campaign in, in the world. And the last thing I would say within that was, um, was a really high level use of, of digital tools across the board um, for a campaign of, of that size, which usually you're, you're kind of limited. Uh, we had some really, really smart people, including the folks who built out an app called Reach, um, that were able to, um, to put a lot of those tools together and make, make a big difference in the way we're able to reach people both online online, and then from online to offline to, to real-life organizing. So, yeah, so digital tools, apps, it really empowering people at the local level, I think, uh, does make a huge difference. And then you talk about uh, getting people who rarely vote to vote. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that uh, a little more specifically. And I think that this is going to get into what the Movement School is about. But if you could just kind of break that down, how specifically did you go about solving the problem of uh, trying to get people who haven't voted in the past to actually get involved in the electoral process? Yeah, I think that that's a, that was a big challenge that we took on in the campaign. I think we, we recognized that that was our path to victory. And we had to reach people who weren't usually voting. Um, and these aren't necessarily people who never vote ever, ever, ever in their lives, but they're either new voters, so they're, they're young people who've maybe voted once in the past, but not all the time, or people who just don't always vote in, in these off-year elections. They might vote in presidential elections, right. but not in a, in a primary congressional election. Um, and so a lot of that was just very intensive focus in terms of targeting on them in our outreach. So when we yeah. were calling people on our phone, we were knocking doors, we were holding community events, we were thinking about who we wanted to be our volunteer leaders in different parts of the district. It was a very intensive focus, particularly on those sorts of people, um, those demographics, which are tended to be a lot of younger people, but mm-hmm. also, um, I would say, particularly uh, middle-aged Hispanic voters in Queens uh, was an area where we had we had a lot of success, people who very, very rarely voted um, but came out and voted for us, and a lot of them had been involved in campaigns since very early days. Um, and that was a, that was a big a big piece as well. Um, I think it was just it was prioritization, and unlike like Elena was saying, this came from the top down. You know, Alexandria, whenever she would come out and talk to us, she would talk about engaging people where they're at, in building up the empowering community members to be part of the campaign. Um, so that wasn't something that like was invented by the people in the campaign. It really came from her, right? Uh, which was which was really important to, to have that value system up and down the chain. Yeah. So it's it's top down, but then it's also kind of bottom up because you talk about empowering uh, these local community directors who are saying, actually, here's what it really is like on the ground. I think that fundamentally can make a, a difference in tone and in execution in a campaign. Um, so let's go ahead and shift over and talk about movement school because this is based on the strategies that you learned and developed. Uh, while you were out working for AOC. So, uh, Elona, tell us just broadly what Movement School is and what it's designed to do. Absolutely. So, Movement School wants to train the next generation of electoral organizers. So, we want to train campaign staffers, whether it's a campaign manager, a field director, a comms director, any position on a campaign. We want to be able to really institutionalize all the progressive teachings that we've learned throughout our experience and be able to give it back to the, to these specific communities to empower them to take on these roles and really be part of the democratic process. Yeah. And I'm actually very curious, you know, you're both co-founders here. Uh, was there a, like a light bulb moment where you were out doing a lot of the work that you were doing for the campaign and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, we should maybe teach this? Uh, Gabe, was there a, a moment like that that you recall? Um, I would say there was like, instead of being one light bulb, it was sort of a series of light bulbs that lit up a room. Oh, that's um, a good metaphor. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there was a moment after the campaign had ended and we were talking with some of the volunteers who had been most involved in the campaign. And they were saying, you know, this was this was amazing, this incredible experience, but we didn't know what we were doing. You know, we had no idea how these how campaigns are supposed to be run. We were sort of making it up, and I guess it worked out. But we really feel like we benefit from having learned from others. Um, and that that linked up with a bunch of experiences that I think myself and Ilona both had later on that summer after the primary election. Uh, Ilona working with uh, State Senator Alessandro Biaggi 
and myself and a few different campaigns in other parts of the, the country um, with, uh, with Abdul's campaign in Michigan, with Beta's campaign in Texas, with Jess King in uh, Pennsylvania, all of whom kind of coming to a very similar model of how to run a campaign that really, although they were very different places in the world, and even Biagi's race was, was somewhat different in, in, in the way it was run, um, but all reflected a similar set of values that were both about why they were running, but also how the campaigns themselves work. So like going back to the sort of empowering of, of people on the campaigns and community focus, um, bold messaging, use of digital tools and so forth. Yeah. Um, that we really felt like there was a there was a coherence to them uh, that that made sense and, and you know think about how to put those into one place and to teach people um, and use kind of the incredible minds that exist out in the world to teach people uh, these sorts of skills would be a great way to use the the platform that developed around Alexandria after the the, the primary victory. Well, you, you've outlined some of the principles uh, already here, but one of the things that your mission statement focuses on is working class communities. And certainly that's really where the AOC campaign uh, put a lot of its focus. And, you know, Trump made a lot of inroads with white working class communities. Uh, and I, I've actually said on this show for a while that progressive populism is fundamentally different than Trump's brand of populism because progressive populism actually helps people. Um, but this, I think, gets to the fear that a lot of moderate Democrats have about winning in purple or even red states and, and districts and the like. And I'm wondering, do you feel that the strategies that you developed while working with AOC can also be effective in reaching any working class community, regardless of where it is or its ethnic makeup? Um, I absolutely think so. I mean, throughout my experience, I've learned that you can't do a one-size-fits-all model, which is where a lot of these consulting firms fail. Um, and we, we see that in the different, you know, in, throughout my experience, throughout Gabe's experience. Um, but at the very, at the, the foundational piece of that is when you give power back to the people, that's when, that's when any sort of like strategy really, you can really see the results coming out of that. And I think for so long, you know, our government and our political system has oppressed um, you know, specifically people of color and women and, and working class folks to really think, you know, oh, politics, you know, it's not a real thing. Um, my voice doesn't matter. My my vote doesn't matter. Right. And this is something that I've experienced even knocking at the door because I'll even tell you a short conversation. I would be knocking at the door and someone told me the one time, I don't vote for any politician. They're all the same. They're all corrupt. Mm. They don't represent me. And I looked at that person and I said, so why don't you vote them out? And they didn't know how to respond back to me. They kind of just looked at me like, wait, yeah. And I, I told them, I said, you know, you have that power. You are the one that put that person in position of power. You have the power to take it away from them. And especially if that person is not adequately representing you and I think people have forgotten that they have this power. And, you know, Alessandra's campaign and Alexandra's campaign, these progressive campaigns that have been so successful, you know, this past year, the fundamental, like the, the fundamental teaching of those campaigns is people power. Right. I, and, you know, it's a very telling story that you relay because it shows us that while it is a, a flawed system, it really can work for people if we remind them. And so let's shift over and talk about movement school. So I know that you have a series of trainings uh, that are done in partnership with local groups. This is called Movement School NYC, and these will be available to everybody to check out in the coming weeks via live stream. But something that is happening right now is a specialized program called the Campaign Fellows Program. And this is designed to train people to work in high-level campaign staff positions. Um, Gabe, tell us a little bit about the coursework here. This is a, this built around a simulated campaign, right? Yeah, it's, it's a very exciting, according to our first cohort now, uh, for the Campaign Fellows Program. And exactly as you say, it's designed for people who are going to take on those high-level leadership positions, um, whether it be campaign manager or one of the more technical staff positions, like field director or communications director, tech director, or finance director. Um, and the way it's structured, uh, it's, all, it's an entirely online program, which lasts 10 weeks uh, and covers a wide range of campaign materials. And it's taught by some, I, 
I say with humility because it's not me teaching uh, with some of the best progressive minds in the country. We have people who've been on some of the presidential, recent presidential Senate campaigns, some of the best local organizers in the country. Um, it's a super exciting that is exciting uh, yeah. roster of, of trainers um, in all different different areas of, of work. And it's as, as you say, so it, the the kind of the core of the program is a campaign simulation. All all the fellows are placed on teams, uh, and then each team is faced with a number of uh, challenges and assignments each week that are all that all fed from the training. So, for example, one week you'll learn how to make a campaign budget, and the next week your team will have to submit a campaign budget for the that you're faced with. Uh, and then we have as well well the, the trainers who are. Doing the trainings will also be giving feedback to teams on the things they submit, um, helping them improve their their thoughts and trying to understand places they're missing. The idea really is to make the program very, very challenging and intense program. Yeah, I actually, I was going to ask you about that. You say that actually on the website that, that it's designed to be incredibly difficult. Uh, so ultimately, I guess yeah. the idea then is that you want people to be making mistakes in a virtual setting, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The idea is to, is to fail here. Um, so that you can succeed when you're actually running real campaigns. I'm wondering if if if, uh, if you wish that there had been something like this when you were starting out, so that you could have uh, made those mistakes in a virtual setting instead of oh on the ground. <laughs> I think I think both of us have have made enough of those kinds of mistakes. We're like, oh, I wish <laughs> I wish Absolutely. I could take that one back. Um, and I think particularly for people who are playing leadership roles, because you're dealing with a lot of different things at once. You're dealing with the public face of the campaign. You're dealing with a long-term and short-term strategy. You're dealing with internal group dynamics, um, which are hugely important. It's not just about what one person can contribute, but about how that that leadership team works together, right. um, which is another big piece of, of the campaign program that we have these teams forming. Um, they, they are going to lead campaigns together, but they're all going to be on those kinds of teams. And so they're learning how to replicate positive behaviors with the team. There's so many campaigns which... You wouldn't be able to tell from the outside, but the problem with those campaigns was that the teams didn't work together well internally. Um, and so and building up the ability of people to do that, dealing with conflict, dealing with uh, you know, issues that come along with campaigns that are totally unpredictable, um, that's a really big piece of, of this program and also what we know about how good campaigns work. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've put a lot of yourselves into this, which is is great. Um, I'll ask you, what sort of experience are you looking for in applicants? I know that you've got a number of applicants at this point from across the country. What sort of experience are you seeing from these applicants so far? Yeah, so the the thing we're looking for here is a way to bring people into those leadership positions who don't usually have access. So that means two kinds of things. That's both an experience question and a diversity question. So on the diversity side, uh, we have floors set for our accepted fellows. That 80% of the accepted fellows will be with people of color or people from working class backgrounds. And that additionally 60% will be women, at least. So those are floors. We could go above those as well. Um, that's super important to us because generally too often campaigns are led, you know, they're not candidates, but they're led by uh, wealthier, people who are wealthier, people who are whiter, and people who are more men than, than women or, or any other gender. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the diversity piece. On the experience side, we're looking for people who are essentially one of two kinds of categories. So either people who have had some campaign experience, but just not necessarily been at those leadership positions, or at least not been in those leadership positions in higher level campaigns. So perhaps they were a field director for a city council race, but haven't been a field director for a congressional race. So there's those kinds. And there's people who maybe don't have a huge amount of campaign experience, but have a lot of other kinds of relevant experience. So maybe they haven't been a tech director for a campaign, but they have a tech technological background. They know how to how to work with those tools, and it's a question of learning how to apply them to a campaign. Really. And that's been the, the majority, I say, about other applicants so far, have been within those those lines as well. Well, you know, that makes me want to loop back to the question that we were discussing uh, a little bit earlier about working class communities. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you if you feel that the, the way that this program is structured, is it specifically designed to run campaigns in the sorts of communities where, you know, AOC won? Or do you see it having a, a, maybe a broader reach in purple or even red state districts where maybe the working class background will not be as ethnically diverse, Gabe? Yeah, I think the, the, the goal of this program is to put forward a set of best practices and build up a, a cohort of very experienced organizers who can apply these sorts of things to any kind of district, 
And this, this can work in Northern Alaska the same way it works in Rome. Um, it's just a matter of how you, how you adapt the sorts of lessons about people power campaigns to the particular district. Yeah. Um, so I think that the, a big piece of our goal is learning about when you put forward bold messaging, the candidates putting forward bold messaging, how does the communication structure work around that? That could be in a lot of different districts. When you're thinking as a field director, how do you expand the electorate? How do you bring in people who haven't voted before? That could be the same in Kentucky as it is in Detroit. Um, those kinds of things are, I think, are pretty universal. And for us, it's really about building up and beyond just the, the technical skills, about building people into those campaign leadership positions who can really represent their communities. Um, and like Alona was saying, part of the problem we've had in, in political space in general is that the ability to be a campaign manager has been limited to people who often have the time and money to go get trained on this stuff right. in, a, in, a, in a master's program or in a pretty expensive, faraway program that just most people can't do. If you've got a family, if you've got kids, if you've got a job that you're working during the day, you can't just drop everything and go pay $20,000 someone had to become a campaign manager. Um, so part of it is it's democratizing that, that level of expertise so that it is accessible to people anywhere in the world. And of course, being online, we don't have to fly people around or be in the place where they are in order for them to participate. And there's no cost to this program, correct? Correct. Well, so, uh, Alona, um, I know that the idea is to connect people to campaigns upon graduation, but there's there's no guarantee of that, correct? No, there's no, uh, I mean, we're, we want to be able to place people on, on campaigns doing um, this type of work. And I, I feel very confident in our ability to do so, especially with the connections that we're making on the ground, from the ground up. Um, and, you know, the different, the also different people supporting us to that, that will, you know, be looking for um, campaign staffers because, you know, it's actually, the there's a very limited number of uh, campaign staffers in this world, actually, that, sure. or at least uh, in the progressive world that, that really, um, you know, run campaigns with this ideological lens. It's, it's very limited. So what ends up happening is that the same people get um, continue getting hired for the same positions. But we, you know, all acknowledge that that can't be it. We really need to bring more people in, train more people. But we acknowledge the problems that we and Gabe both addressed earlier. Um so even, you know, I feel very confident that they will find a home somewhere um, on, on a campaign. But regardless of, regardless of that, um, we have so many other different, we will have so many different projects going on, like I said, on the ground, um, different projects in partnership with, with other organizations. Yeah. Um, we've been making a lot of really good relationships with, with a few organizations, even outside of New York City, um, that they'll always be able to pl- be plugged in every, um, you know, somewhere. And especially with these, the tools and the resources that they will have and, and the training that they will have, it's very valuable um, in, in a lot of these spaces because it's, it comes with a lot of transferable skills. And Gabe, what is the deadline to apply for this year's Campaign Fellows Program? Deadline's coming up soon. Uh, so those are people who, who want to apply, you have until midnight on February 28th next Thursday to get your application in. So yeah, if there's, if there's folks who are listening who are thinking about applying, um, you can go to our, it's a good time to plug, plug the website. Please. Yeah, so you can go to our website at movementschool.us and there you'll find the application to, to become a campaign fellow. Um, the application's not super long, but there are a few short answer questions. You can get yourself familiarized with the application. Um, yeah, and then, and then send it in before about a week from week and week and a day from today. Okay. And of course that information as always will be at indivisiblepodcast.org. Alona Diverge and Gabe Tobias are the co founders of Movement School. Thank you guys both so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. And next up we will unpack some of the week's headlines with our week in review segment. And to do that we are joined by Chris Petzold. She is founder and head of Indivisible Washington's eighth district. Hello, Chris. Hello there. And also by Shasti Conrad. She is the chair of the King County Democrats. Hello, Shasti. Hello. So, you guys, we haven't talked since Snowmageddon. Uh, how did you both uh, survive? Uh, Shasti, how'd you do? 
Um, we, yeah, it, it, I was stuck in the house for well over a week. Um, <laughs> uh, we had to dig out, but now the sun is shining. So I kind of feel like it's like a distant memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all kind of melting now. Chris, I, we've talked uh, since then, but, uh, you know, just give us a sense of how you survived being holed up in your, in your place. Well, I was having some interesting conversations with my cat um, <laughs> towards the end. And um, the first time I made it out to get to the store, finally, everything was just like in Technicolor. I felt oh, yeah. like I was alive and in the world again. So that was that was weird. And now there's just uh, ugly, dirty snow piles everywhere. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the way that yeah. you're talking about your cat made it sound like uh, Tom Hanks talking to the volleyball in, uh, in, in <laughs> Castaway. That's how I felt. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, we had uh, well over a foot of snow that, all, yeah, because of the sun is just now melting. Um, but I will say that uh, it sounds like all three of us did better than uh, Tim Iman and Jay Rodney uh, did last <laughs> week, uh, both of whom had a little legal trouble. Um, I'm not going to comment on either of those stories other than to repeat something that somebody said on Twitter, which is, quote, I always thought Tim Iman should get the chair. So there you go. (laughs) All right, you guys. So let's uh, start this week by talking about Trump's emergency declaration. So last Friday, Trump declared a national emergency, or as he uh, wrote it on Twitter initially, a national emergy to get money for his wall. And in response, Chris, uh, we actually organized a candlelight vigil in Seattle's Volunteer Park. You were one of the co-organizers with me. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about the event. Well, thank you, uh, Stefan, for being such a fantastic uh, MC. Uh, you, you just keep getting better and better at those events. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. And I think uh, it was so fantastic that we got all of those electeds there, the governor, the AG, yeah. two members of Congress and the King County executive. I'm so thankful that they were all uh, able to join us and share their thoughts. Uh, the setting was epic. We did it at sunset and the view, you know, from there was just really great. And, you know, I think that we all sort of sense that folks are having rally fatigue. I mean, we've been at this, you know, over two years now. And um, so we wanted to kind of change up the program and add some music. So I was just really uh, pleased with how, uh, you know, things, things came together. And, you know, it sounded like it was a really good event from the attendees. So that's, that's all we can ask for. And, You know, in this week's version of This Is My Life, I was, you know, texting with Bob Ferguson trying to get him to the event on time and stuff. So it's just it goes to show you that, you know, citizens, I'm just a normal person and citizens, you know, that care, we can have an impact and get a wonderful person like Bob Ferguson to come to an event that you organized. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, it all came together in 48 hours, and uh, it was just generosity of spirit. Uh, Bob Ferguson actually drove up from Olympia, so he basically did two events in one day. Um, Yeah, we really did try to mix it up a little bit with some music. Um, uh, We had Harris Schwartzreich, singer-songwriter from Seattle, who led us in some songs, and then Reverend Dr. Kelly J. Brown of the Plymouth Church in Seattle uh, led us in some extraordinary uh, songs. It was extremely cold, so I will just say thank you to everybody who came out. Um, so yeah. in terms of Trump's emergency declaration, there are two ways that people on the left are reacting uh, that I have seen. One is to say that it is a dangerous authoritarian power grab, and that is absolutely true. But the other is to point out how weak it is making him look. Uh, in the Daily Beast, Sally Cohn called it a, quote, desperate act of a desperate man who is becoming increasingly irrelevant in Washington. Shasti, what is your take on Trump's national emergency declaration to get funding for his wall. I mean, I think, you know, that press announcement that he did in the Rose Garden, like it really it speaks for itself in so many ways. I mean, the the sort of word vomit that came out around this declaration <laughs> was, you know, great fodder for all of the late night shows and Saturday Night Live. Um, I mean, it's it's clear. I mean, there, he's he's grasping at straws. I mean, it, it tells me, especially after, you know, the gains in the midterm elections, I feel like increasingly you just see someone who is like looking for anything and everything to try to assert some degree of power and someone who knows that like, you know, the sort of darkness is coming in. Um, and I think, you know, with Mueller's um you know, report sort of looming and the indictments coming and all of that. I mean, I, I think it's just like they're trying anything and, and everything to freak people out because that's how they've that's what they've used before to try to get people to turn out. Now, the thing that does scare me is that this has worked before for the Republican Party. Right. Um, 
you know, the so much of, of that sort of fear mongering has turned out voters in the past. It has um, it has made their their party really kind of stand out and get people riled up. So, you know, I, I mean, I I think it's easy to laugh at, you know, the the pictures of him at the omelet bar, you know, like I think um, it's easy to sort of feel like this is all just ridiculous. But, you know, I feel like we're in, in this time of great uncertainty where I don't know if it's going to work. Um, I think that it's obviously a farce that it's not, I mean, it's not an emergency. Climate change is an emergency, you know, um, reuniting these children who've been taken from their parents, that is an emergency. Um, and the wall, I mean, I just, he's been claiming that he's going to build this wall or someone's going to pay for it for years. And it's still, you know, it's still just this crazy idea. So I, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but I, I do fear that it is rallying their base in this very odd odd way. Yeah. I mean, you're bringing up something that I think is shaping up to be his approach to winning in 2020, uh, which is basically just scaring the hell out of his base with, you know, fear of immigration and then the quote unquote late term abortion and then making false equivalencies between authoritarian socialism and democratic socialism. And I want to unpack all that in a little bit. But, you know, just kind of getting what back to what you were just saying a a moment ago, this really is frightening because it is an end run around Congress. And it's it's serious because it subverts the constitutional balance of power. Um, and there have been arguments against it from both Democrats and Republicans that it sets a dangerous precedent. Um, some Democrats like Nancy Pelosi have noted that a future Democratic president could, as you say, declare a national emergency on the climate. Um, I don't know, Chris, if this is allowed to stand, and that's a big if because you know the court challenges are certainly coming, how would we feel about the next Democratic president declaring a state of emergency on the climate? Is this something that we should perpetuate you know, or retaliate with? I have to say no, um, because I think this is a a clear cut example of presidential overreach, um, which has been happening for the past few decades, honestly. Um, And I think that we need to put a check on that power, um, even though, you know, global warming is actually an emergency uh, that needs to be treated as such. But I think this is uh, presidential overreach. Um, And as you say, there there are uh, court cases pending, but there's also a piece of legislation that's going to be dropping this Friday, I believe, um, to cancel the national emergency. Uh, And this is part of the the national emergency law, but it's never actually been done before where Congress has canceled a national emergency. So um, I'm very pleased that my Congresswoman Kim Schreier has signed on uh, to yep. this law to cancel the emergency. Um, and so I hope I hope that's actually what happens here. Yeah, we're going to be talking about that in our call to action in the next segment. But let's shift over and talk about Bernie Sanders, who officially entered the race this week. Um, And the responses to that have been, uh, let's call them mixed. Uh, Some people who love him are thrilled and people who don't are uh, not. But uh, pretty much everybody else is nervous about the Democratic infighting that this has already started stirring up, which we will get to. Um, I want to take a look at the pros and cons of a Bernie candidacy. So Shasti, I know that you were on the national advance staff for Bernie in 2016, so we'll start with you. Uh, Bernie did manage to put a lot of progressive issues front and center when he ran in 2016. So talk about your reaction to his announcement now. I mean, I'm 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 thrilled. You know, I, I sort of um, I think I've seen this. I've seen it coming. And, and in some ways, I feel like you know, he, we really started something very powerful in 2016. And he did something, I mean, you know, I know we're going to talk about sort of the term socialism coming up, but, Mm. you know, you used to not be able to say that word. You couldn't talk about, people didn't understand the differences between democratic socialism, socialism. You couldn't talk about things like, you know, free college for all, you know, we're still struggling to get Medicare for all, but you, even talking about those things immediately, people would say, oh no, that'll never happen. And, you know, he put those he put those policies out into the mainstream. And what I found when I was on the road with him, which when I started, I started working um, for him in uh, February of 2016, in those sort of early days of the primary season. And, you know, I I had 
I'd worked for Obama. I was sort of getting doing it as like this is another political job. And I, I didn't know the long history of Bernie's activism. And when I got on the road with him, I mean, I, I traveled to 15 different states and I saw I helped to manage crowds that were, you know, a thousand people to 35,000 people. Mm. And I saw the way that his message was resonating with everyone. I mean, I saw every kind of person in these rallies. I saw young people, I saw old people, I saw white people, I saw people of color, you know, every kind of person and people hung on his every word and they knew they knew the policies, they knew the high points in his speech. And so I feel like he started something really powerful and now this announcement in his run for 2020 is like we have to finish we have to finish the job um, and really turn it into a very serious, you know, real campaign, help help lead it through this mainstreaming process. Um, and so I, I, I find it with a lot of excitement. I will also add that it also filled me with some anxiety mm-hmm. <laughs> and nervousness um, because of, as you said, the reaction to him was mixed and it has been mixed. Um, you know, when I, when I worked for him in 2016, you know, I was one of the very few Obama folks who decided to work on his campaign versus Hillary's. And, um, you know, I, I am, I've, I've watched the negative response and, and I, and I worry that we're going to end up doing the same things that we did in 2016, which is turning on each other. And, that we cannot, we cannot, we can't do it because right. that type of infighting um, will hand it to the Republicans and will hand it to Trump. So I am excited about his run. Um, I think that he's learned a lot in these last couple of years, and I'm excited to see how he's grown and how the campaign will be different um, from 2016. But I'm also, you know, worried that it's he's going to be used as a way to create a, a wedge and division amongst Democrats. Yeah, it is a concern. And, you know, I, I want to unpack that in a second. But just kind of as a follow up, um, you know, I have seen people arguing on social media. I guess we need to get used to that, um, that, you know, Bernie will keep the other Democrats to the left on issues like Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. But a lot of the other candidates are already there. Right. Elizabeth Warren, certainly. Um, I, and I'm wondering, did, did he work him, himself out of a job? Does this change the calculus for you in, in supporting him? I would say, I mean, you know, it is it is pretty exciting to see, you know, so many other, you know, Democrats who are running to like pick up the pieces of his platform and take them on. And, you know, the number of co-sponsors for Medicare for all has grown, you know, from, I mean, Bernie was putting that bill forward for years and he was basically the only one. And now pretty much every major 2020 candidate has co-sponsored, you know, that bill. And, um, so it's, it is exciting. And I I think, yeah, you're right. There is the possibility that he has, (laughs) he, he's done, he's done what he came to do, which was he's, he's mainstreamed these policies, um, to the point that, it doesn't have to be just him, you know, that can see this through. But, you know, I do think he's best poised to do it. And I do think that, I mean, the fact that he raised, you know, what was it, $6 million? In yeah, that is pretty astonishing. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. And through small through small donations. I have a, a good friend who works in, in campaign finance and um, has worked as a fundraiser on a number of campaigns. And his insight was, you know, Bernie has a real chance to continue to be a front runner because as the field is so wide, a lot of the larger donors are, you know, Democratic Party donors are probably some of them are going to wait. They're going to wait out and they're going to see who starts to take the take the lead. But Bernie's raising on small donors and that will give him an edge to be able to really put forth and build a campaign structure that some of the other candidates will not be able to because they're going to have to wait for the larger checks. So it's exciting to see how this will play out. Um, And, you know, I think, I think he's still the one to beat. You know, I really think he's the, he's the one that people are really rooting for. Um, Love him or hate him. People, people are, People have a lot of feelings about him. Well, polls are consistently showing well, – they're showing him as the front runner right now. But they're also you know, showing like the only other person who could step in at this point and be at the same level that he's at right now in terms of polling is Biden. Um, Chris, I'm guessing you have a less sanguine view of uh, Sanders' candidacy. How did you receive his announcement that he's running? Uh, I, I'm, 
I'm sorry to be kind of a downer, but it's <laughs> kind of um, it's kind of giving me some flashbacks to 2016, honestly, and that whole that whole process was so painful. Um, I am grateful to Bernie Sanders for uh, make more mainstreaming a lot of the progressive ideas that we're we're all talking about today. I'm, I'm deeply and sincerely grateful about that. Um, but I am, um, I am suffering from, um, some very hard feelings about, um, 2016. And, um, I think that the way that we should all start dealing with this is just pivot away from our personal feelings. And that's why I don't really want to spend too much time on, uh, talking about how I personally feel, um, because that doesn't really matter. I think that, um, the way that we can all sort of work together and, and band together on this is, is to think about and focus on how these candidates can are aligned with the issues and how uh, and their ability to beat Donald Trump, because that's what this is about. It's yeah. like, who cares what I personally think and what you personally think? It's like, how can how can we win? I think that's one of the things that's kept the left pretty united up until this point. And I personally have been dreading this moment. And, and we all knew that it was coming. Um, when you have a common enemy, it's it's easy to stay united. But now I think a lot of uh, more granular divisions are, are going to start arising. And, you know, Shasta, I don't mean to make you uh, like the spokesperson for Bernie. But one of the problems that he's going to face is that a lot of Hillary supporters were very alienated by Bernie's supporters. And it wasn't necessarily his fault, but he probably needs to address that in some way because he is going to need to win those voters back if he's going to win the primary, right? So what in your mind could or should Bernie do here? Uh, yes. I mean, and I, and I think, you know, those, some of those hard feelings are, you know, they're definitely legitimate. I think he's, he's definitely had missteps um, in sort of explaining some of his positions and, you know, what I have spent, you know, somewhat significant time around him and, you know, I think some of it is that he, to his core, really believes that economic policy is sort of the the, the rising tide that lifts all boats. And, and I think sometimes misunderstands the role that identity um, plays in, 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 you know, in just in politics, but also just in sort of um, everyday life. And but I've, I've, I've seen him I've seen him learning and growing um, part of the pause in the last few months of before the announcement was him trying to make sure that he understood gender politics better, that he understood racial dynamics better. Um, you know, they've, I, the, the campaign has hired a new um, campaign manager, Fayez Shakur, who um, used to work for Harry Reid. And, um, you know, he, he's, they're, they're doing the work um, from what I can tell from behind the scenes to really try to, address some of those issues that they had in 2016 and to try to be more open and understanding of, um, you know, where the, where that, those hard divisions and tensions were with Hillary supporters. Um, so, I mean, I think at the end of the day, he's got to walk the talk. So it's going to be, you know, can he, can he change the rhetoric? Can he, can he bring people in? Can he have those types of conversations? Um, and playing nice. I mean, I think for the most part, you know, the the other candidates who have declared have mostly been pretty positive. They've been supportive of one another. There hasn't been a lot of, um, yeah. you know, sort of jabs. And I think Bernie, I think people are expecting that Bernie's going to be harder and maybe not not as kind. And um, but I, I think I don't think that's I don't think that's actually going to be the case. I think I see him learning and um at the end of the day, like Chris said, we all need to remember that we've got to be at the on the same side. We have to beat Trump. So it's important that we that we come together and that we remember that we're Democrats and that we we have we have to beat Trump. So I right. I think he can I think he can do it. We'll see. Um, but most importantly, we as Democrats have to stand by each other and make sure that we're not turning against one another. Yeah. I mean, well, Chris, you said something that stuck with me, which is pivot from personal feelings. And I, I know you're thinking a lot about this right now, particularly in the mm -hmm. context of your indivisible group, um, because people are going to be supporting different candidates. I mean, we saw this with a split between uh, people who supported different congressional candidates in the midterm. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't at all about ideology. So right. do you have a game plan for how to diffuse the infighting that is most certainly coming? <laughs> uh 
I'm working on it. Um, yeah. I think um, some general thoughts, uh, areas of where I'm thinking are that in our group in particular, we're going to be uh, working to build a process to handle it um, that's transparent and people are going to be um, bought in. Um, there's a lot of um, thinking on this at the national level and indivisible on, on you know, setting out some guidelines and um yeah, um, I did learn a lot from our primary process and, um, and you know, just, you know, multiply that times a million for the presidential run and reflecting on 2016. It's something that we all need to think about. And I think what I said before is what we actually need to do is shift away from our personal feelings about the candidate. And that's why I'm not even saying anything about my personal feelings about Bernie. No. Um, we just need to shift away from that and concentrate on the issues and concentrate on who can beat Trump. Yeah, I mean, it really it's it's a heavy lift because, you know, I think part of the issue, what we learned from people like George Lakoff, who have studied the the way that we are sort of hardwired on the left and the right, is that Republicans tend to value things like top down hierarchy and father figures. So it's very easy for them relatively to fall in line. But uh, with the left, Mm -hmm. you know, we value things like fairness and justice and hearing from all sides. And we tend to distrust authority. So there's uh, there's there's less cohesion and there's more opportunity for infighting. So that's a lot of fun. Um, but <laughs> we're all going to do the best that we can to kind of keep everybody together. So and speaking of our common enemy, and I touched on this earlier, but let's talk about how to respond to what is shaping up to be Trump's 2020 campaign platform. He had this line in the State of the Union that I think kind of outlined it uh, pretty succinctly about how Democrats are, quote, becoming the party of socialism, late term abortion, open borders and crime. Uh, and as far as socialism goes, uh, it's very clear that he's going to use it to scare voters who do not understand the difference between democratic socialism and authoritarian socialism, particularly things like the Green New Deal, which almost every Democratic candidate says that they support. I'm wondering if this line of attack concerns either of you. Are, are we afraid that it's going to be effective with the centrist voters that we need to win over? Shasti, do you have any thoughts? I mean, I think it's, you know, it's straight out of the playbook of, you know, like George W. Bush in 2004. I mean, they 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 purposefully tried to drive up um, a lot of dust around like, you know, same sex marriage and abortion as a way to turn out their base. And it and worked. So, and, and that's what's so scary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, so that's why, like, you know, we were talking about the um, emergency declaration and, and his sort of, you know, the like word vomit around all of that. I was like, yeah, they're literally pulling every phrase that they can think of that is meant to freak out their base. And it it has worked. I mean, so I don't underestimate their ability to be able to fearmonger, you know, and I and so I, I think it just means that we have to be um, we have to be really on our game and, you know, to speaking to like as Chris said before, to remember that like we have to come together because this is what we're fighting against. And the more that they talk about, you know, late term abortion and, um, you know, these the fear around, you know, the folks at the border and all of that, we have to just continue to connect issues back to everyday life and remembering what people are going through. And they're worried about paying their bills. They're worried about whether they can keep their house. They're worried about being able to afford for their kids to go to college. Right. Like we have to just continue to bring it back to real life. Um, and harnessing that people are people are afraid of what's happening in this country and they're afraid of what their what their lives are going to look like. And so I think if we just continue to be authentic and we are representative and we are inclusive and we speak to diversity and the ways that that benefits our country and benefits our communities, then we'll combat it. And then we have to do the work that like, you know, both you and Chris are and the indivisibles are so excellent at which is getting people out and getting them out to vote. So that, you know, that's where the um, rallies are so important, but we have to make sure that we are translating all that energy to, to the ballot box. Yeah. So you're saying we got to own who we are and then we got to turn people out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, 
You know, and speaking of of that, you know, you're talking about how, you know, our policies help people. And this is something that I've kind of harped on on the show quite a bit about how Trump's, quote unquote, populism has never really delivered for working class people and progressive populism. You know, a a program like the Green New Deal would help people with things like job security, health care and, you know, making sure the planet is inhabitable. Um, Chris, is there a way to shift this conversation in a meaningful way for voters and particularly the kind of that that soft middle that Democrats are going to need to win in 2020. Yeah, I think that part of the the, the picture here is that we need to uh, not let ourselves get into his frame and repeat his terminology. Mm. So when someone says, you know, socialism, you just say, oh, well, how is this idea of socialism? I mean, I just want to have, you know, for example, my neighbor went bankrupt because he didn't have health insurance. I just want to see us, you know, avoid situations like that. Or I just want everyone to feel like a dignity of having a a decent um, job. You know, um, I don't, I mean, call it what you want, but I just, those are the values that I have and I want to see in a president. Um, And I think that we just need to stop repeating his uh, phrases and really just bring it back to the core of what we're actually about. Yeah. Uh, which is about the people <laughs> and right. about your kitchen table and about just just normal stuff that actually everyone wants except for the one percent. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I think George Lakoff uh, couldn't have said it better. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's exactly the kind of reframing yeah. that we need to do. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I think we need to train ourselves to use that kind of language that is more yeah. prevalent and is heard by people on the right, uh, and is and we need to sort of shy away from the sorts of things that we naturally feel you know things like justice and fairness and we need to we need to continue to reframe you know something i I will just sort of point out is that in a recent gallup poll uh 57 percent of democrats view socialism positively and uh, that's versus 47 percent who see capitalism positively and then 51 percent of all people 18 to 29 have a positive view of socialism i mean shasti is is this the future should dems embrace it i'll give you the last word this week Oof. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, yeah, I mean, the numbers say that millennials are really are comfortable, you know, and that the policies line up with democratic socialism. Um, and, you know, as now the chair of the King County Democrats, I mean, I'll admit that I've been watching, you know, the messaging from the DSA in this area, and they're really great at speaking to a lot of the issues. And so, you know, I think we do have to be mindful of, you know, how those progressive policy points, how they do align with the with the party. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I think I think it's something that we shouldn't be afraid of. Um, but we do have to recognize the the history and, and and that we're meeting people at different points along this path of understanding what this sort of progressive platform means. And we have to do the work of helping to educate and and helping to bring that fear around the term and bring it back to the policies of you know being able to create a society that looks out for one another right. and you know really promotes that people should be able to get a solid education should be able to pay their healthcare bills should be able to put food on their own tables i mean that's 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 what it that's what it's really about and so Whatever we call it, right. it's about building a better community. Yeah, call it what you will. Call it socialism. Call it anything. But it ultimately right. means helping people. So there you go. And that's right. what we're about. All right, you guys, that's going to do it for this Week in Review. Thank you, Chris Petzold. Thank you very much. And thank you, Shasti Conrad. Thank you. And finally, this week, we check in with our friend Stephen Wilhelm. He is research team leader for Indivisibles Washington's 8th, and uh, we will get our calls to action. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Seth. How's it going? Good, man. So uh, let's start with what Chris and Chastity and I were just discussing, and that is Trump's fake emergency declaration. Talk a little bit about procedurally what the House and Senate can do about this. You bet. So the president has declared uh, an emergency at the southern border under uh, what's called the National Emergencies Act. Um, And that law has got a couple of features that work to uh, progressives' benefit. So the the first feature is that if a president declares an emergency under this this act, um, either house may introduce uh, a resolution to terminate the emergency. 
And that's, as I understand, what the Democrats plan to do as soon as Congress comes back in, in session next week. Okay. The other uh, feature of this bill is that uh, once one House passes a resolution to terminate an emergency, the other House must take it up. So normally, um, Senator or uh, Leader McConnell would try to um, stonewall a law like this passed or a bill like this passed. But he can't House, do but that with this, right? Exactly right. There's a time limit, in fact. So within a short time period, um, something less than 30 days, I don't know the exact time limit, but within a short time period, he must take it up. Um, And so what's going to happen is this will force everybody, but certainly Republican uh, lawmakers, to go on the record with whether they support or oppose President Trump's end run to essentially steal money, take money that's been allocated for other purposes and and use it for his uh, vanity project on the border. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, there are a number of GOP senators from purple states who are going to be up in 2020. So this vote will put pressure on them and may start to show cracks in Trump's GOP support. This is a pretty blatant abuse of power by Trump. And I think all of our Democratic members of Congress and our senators will be voting accordingly. Yes. It, that's that's exactly right. I think, um, you, you know, on this one, it's a little bit difficult to speculate, but I would guess that there will be enough um, Republican senators. It, it would only take four um, who will cross over uh, folks like Collins, Murkowski, um, and, and perhaps, you know, a couple of others, like you were just saying, Cory Bennett, um, you know, those that are looking at some tough uh, reelection uh, campaigns in 2020 will probably vote for it. So, in fact, one thing we could do when we when we ask our, our representatives and our senators um, to vote for this is to already let them know that we also expect them to um, to oppose, uh, to override uh, a veto if, if the president almost certainly does veto this bill and to try and work with their um, Republican counterparts in the House and the Senate to try and encourage them to to override the veto as well. So one step at a time, first step is certainly to pass the law, but it doesn't hurt to let them know that we'll be calling again yeah. and asking them to override yeah. when, he, when he issues. Absolutely. All right, let's shift over and talk about the Green New Deal. Um, this has been discussed a lot lately, but um, you and I haven't talked about it in terms of what Indivisible is calling for. We are asking for all of our Democratic members of Congress to co-sponsor it, right? That's exactly right. This has progressed to the point where there are, there are actually um, House and Senate resolutions now um, in in support of the Green New Deal. In, in the House, it's uh, House Resolution 109, and in the Senate, it's uh, Senate Resolution 59. Um, so, so, you know, obviously the Green New Deal is a pretty big, pretty complicated deal. Um, we're not, we haven't uh, had hearings and, and um, you know, done enough work on it yet where we're ready to pass legislation, but we certainly want to hold hearings and make proposals about what we think should be included under this comprehensive Green New Deal, and that's what this this resolution will allow. Now, in, in Washington State, uh, only uh, Congresswoman uh, Jayapal has uh, co-sponsored uh, uh, the House Bill 109, so our House resolution. So there's uh, an opportunity for the other uh, Washington uh, representatives to get on board with that. And about the only uh, senators that have um, co-sponsored uh, Senate Resolution 59 are the presidential candidates. So neither Senator Murray nor Senator Cantwell has co-sponsored it. So the the, um, the call to action there would be to ask our representatives and our senators to co-sponsor those resolutions and to vote for them um, when they finally uh, come to the floor. And in fact, we'll need to ask them to work hard to bring those to the floor um, because Speaker Pelosi, um, you know, having passed the cap and trade back in, I think it was 2009, um, and, and, you know, got badly burned by that in the, in the midterm elections that followed, she's not real sold on the Green New Deal yet. So it's going to take a lot of work by a lot of people over a long time period to to get that to come to fruition. So we're just starting a long journey here with this one. So call your representative, call your senator and senators and ask them to support these two resolutions. Yeah, as you say, Jayapal 
uh, is the only member of Congress right now. So that leaves out uh, Kilmer, Smith, Delbeni, Heck, Schreier. So if you're represented by one of them, give them a call. And of course, also call the two senators. And then finally, we have another so-called messaging bill. This one is the Paycheck Fairness Act. This is H.R. 7. Tell us what this would do. Yeah, yeah, that's a, um, a good bill we've got that uh, the House should take up. And in fact, uh, within Washington's congressional delegation, we've got a little bit of leverage here. So H.R. 7, as you said, is the uh, Paycheck Fairness Act. The, the issue there is that um, women are paid uh, typically about 80 cents on the, on the dollar, uh, 80 cents for every dollar that men are paid for the exact is, same work. It is hard to believe in 2019 that that's still the case, man. Exactly so. And not only that, the disparity is even worse for women of color. And under current law, it's really too easy for employers to get away with uh, pay discrimination. So what this uh, Paycheck Fairness Act is intended to do is to make it easier for employees to bring suit against employers and and for those employers to be be, be found liable for not paying equally for equal work and, and for um, employer employees to be able to get remedy for that. Um, so um, the leverage that we have here in Washington state is that Congresswoman Schreier is a member of the committee that um, is going to be having a markup for this bill. It's the House Education and Labor Committee. And so the request for Congresswoman Schreier's constituents specifically would be to ask her to push for a markup of H.R. 7 within the next few weeks. And if you're not in the 8th Congressional District, then then reach out to your representative. And if it's a Democratic representative that's, that your representative may have, they have in Washington State, co-sponsored this legislation. So ask your uh, legislator to reach out to Congresswoman Schreier and ask her to push for a markup in the House Education and Labor Committee um, within the next few weeks. Yeah, that seems like a pretty straightforward ask. And uh, yeah, it is my understanding that every single Democrat in the House is a co-sponsor. So we're really kind of turning our attention to our new congresswoman in the 8th District, Kim Schreier. All right, Stephen, thank you for the update. We'll talk to you next time. My pleasure. Looking forward to talking to you next week, Stephen. And that's going to do it for this week's show, you guys. For links to everything that we talk about here, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Gabe Tobias and Alona DeVerge. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.